This is Bloody Violent History. Welcome back to the second and terminal part to our discussion on contagion. In part one, Jamie and I talked about why disease can suddenly rampage around the world and how the plague, the Black Death, caused misery to millions, whilst paradoxically raising up the indentured poor towards better living. In this episode, we examine the big beasts of the Pantheon and how their destruction developed man's destiny. But before we jump in, please remember to pass this episode on to a friend. Do it now. Just hit the share button and post it. Right, back to the show. A term people often use when they've got a runny tummy is to say they've got dysentery. But actually the disease of dysentery, or what was known in the 17th century as the bloody flux, is an extremely unpleasant way to die. And it has killed millions through the centuries. It's so often the coming together of people, the migration of people into cramped environments with poor sanitation, no decent food, no running water, uh, no proper sewage system. These are the problems that all create uh, a great environment in which dysentery can thrive, including trenches. I mean, you've got terrible dysentery cases during every war among among troops. It's often dysentery. It's infected food, water and flies. That's what you need. That's all you need for for dysentery to take hold. And it, it, it has a catastrophic... Uh, impact on the communities and, of course, the armies that, that are affected by it. And you look to the late 17th century, I mean, Cardiff was hit by a dysentery outbreak and it, it killed thousands of people and no one knew how to deal with it. It's also had the distinction of killing off quite a few famous people, leaders. For instance, in 1216, John I, King John, King John Lackland, as he was sometimes called, um, Edward I, one of Jamie's favourites, caught dysentery on the way to the Scottish borders and died in his servant's arms in 1307. Edward the Black Prince, uh, you know, we spoke about him fighting at the Battle of Poitiers and Crecy. Um, well, he, he got knocked over by dysentery age 46 in uh, 1376. And what's amazing is that the, the euphemism that, that people have always used to describe the dysentery, people like Edward I, they always claim these kings died from a surfeit of lamprey. That's yep, scapegoat. La- lampreys have been scapegoat. Have you seen their little sucker faces, their little suckers? They, they could they, be more innocent. Yes, they cling on. They, they <laughs> cling on. They're evil creatures. What's that old uh, Star Trek joke? How do you fight Klingons? Oh, I can't remember it now. Three, three squares of loo paper. <laughs> Something like that. And anyway, then, of course, you had um, and Henry V, you know, another... Another great hero who died from dysentery. But, but of course, King John, they claim, died from a surfeit of peaches. So they, 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 he was probably poisoned, actually. But, but it's because no one really knew what food poisoning yeah. or dysentery they was. They probably meant the last... I mean, uh, even Augustus was supposed to have died from a surfeit of figs, but he was either poisoned or, or you know, that was the last thing he ate. Well, it, it, embarrassing if you actually do die from a surfeit of figs. <laughs> greedy bastard <laughs> uh, but 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 dysentery uh, has has predated on 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 
so many different battlefields and so many prisons and so many, I mean the prison hulks were were always being hit by dysentery and by mm. typhus of course I suppose it, you don't get so much it's not quite like the plague where it sweeps through is it it's more like it's it's there all the time you just need to let conditions fall apart that's exactly what happens. Coming more up to date, if you look at the Second World War and what happened at the Selarang Barracks in Changi Jail in 1942, you, you got terrible conditions then. And we talked about malnutrition. And at the end of the uh, Second World War, when Changi Jail was, was uh, liberated by the Allies, everyone who came out weighed six stone. I mean, it, they, they mm. were absolutely emaciated. But, but this, that, that, that incident was kind of almost engineered by the Japanese commander of the POW camp as punishment. It was punishment because four men had tried to escape. What this Japanese commander did in true Japanese uh, commandant style was push 17,000 Allied prisoners, Australians and Brits, into a barracks that was designed to hold 800. So, of course, you're going to get a dysentery outbreak, and this is exactly what happened. They had one tap. Exactly, they had one tap. The, 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 the latrines were non-existent. So, so you get this immediate spread and a terrible amount of deaths. And what the commandant wanted to do was force the men to agree to sign a, a memorandum saying that they weren't going to escape, and the men refused. But when they started getting huge casualties from dysentery, when the four escapees uh, were executed by the Japanese... By the Indian... They, yes, the, the, the people forget that the Indian National Army, uh, the, those who had sided with the Japanese, they were often used as guards at Changi Jail and had a terrible reputation for brutality. So those four prisoners were, were executed and the others decided, the, the senior officers among the Brits and the Australians decided that it was best that the men put their signatures to an agreement that they wouldn't escape. But in, in, in true Aussie and Brit style, they just used fake signatures. And, and you cannot, under the Geneva Convention, force prisoners uh, to sign declarations saying they won't escape, they won't try to escape. Although the Japanese hadn't signed the Geneva Convention. It, well, indeed. And, and the Australians, for example, signed themselves Ned Kelly a lot of them. So Do they the, go around with a metal bucket on there? <laughs> <laughs> but there's, but was the it a metal bucket? He had a suit of armour, he, he? Had yeah. a, he had a homemade suit of yeah. armour, which didn't no, but say I, Ned I, Kelly. Actually, it's, it was an appalling. It, it was appalling, but, but it was so uh, common among the, the prisoners of the Japanese. What the prisoners went through on the Burma Railway, for example, and the Kwai, it, it was just horrendous. And so few of those Japanese were ever brought to justice. It was just terrifying. But then so few Nazis were brought to justice after the Second World War. Anyway, back to dysentery. That is really why it's worth men mentioning dysentery here. It, it, it often goes hand in hand with other diseases, waterborne diseases such as typhoid and cholera, which we're about to come on to. Today, we still hear quite a lot about water companies like Thames Water dumping raw sewage into the River Thames, um, normally after there's been heavy rain and the sewers fill up with rainwater which mixes in with the sewage and the only way to prevent manhole covers flying off in the streets is for the 
excess effluent to be released into the river rather than taken off down the Thames estuary and processed east of London. But in the mid-1800s, Jamie, there was the famous Great Stink in London. What were they worried about? What disease were they concerned about? They were worried about two diseases, really, typhoid and cholera. And these, of course, are waterborne diseases, but no one actually really knew at that time. I've talked about the miasma, the stink, and you have to remember quite how disgusting London was, how disgusting most major cities were at the time. There, there was no sewage system as, as we know it today. Most houses had cesspits. The, the, the Houses of Parliament, the Palace of Westminster, sat above a giant cesspit, and these were usually cleared by men going round with carts. But the streets stank. There were 80,000 horses alone in London at that time, during Dickensian times. So the, the general level of squalor and smell was quite appalling. And, and they were convinced that this, this air they breathed was a vector for disease, when in fact it wasn't directly. C- c- completely, and it was only people like William Budd who discovered that it was sort of faeces in water uh, in the mid-19th century on the typhoid, for that carried typhoid, and then you got people like John Snow realising, having plotted the, the, the cholera outbreaks around the Seven Dials area, that he went and just took the handle off the water pump, the communal water pump in Broad Street. And and immediately you saw a, a decline in the number of cholera cases in the area. So you started getting this sort of understanding that that it was actually having a proper sewer system, a proper water system that would create better conditions. And although well, by all by all accounts the reason the MPs were forced to do it was that they couldn't bear the smell rather than that they were presented with a scientific paper. Oh, completely. There was one day in which Gladstone and Israeli both ran from the Palace of Westminster with, with, with handkerchiefs clamped over their noses and, and the following day they agreed that we must have a bill, we must do something. Forced by the sheer stench. That's exactly right. I mean, unless you do that to politicians, they're never going to move on anything. This is what happened. And, and, and you look back to, to the decades before that, I mean, certainly the early 1830s, and you were getting cholera riots all around the world. I mean, in, in Russia, for example, in St. Petersburg, you had you know, the cholera riots. You, you had artillery being used against protesters, against rioters. So you you had this awful situation out there and people were blaming the authorities, attacking local governors. Over here, you had the Aberdeen riots, 20,000 people getting involved in 1831, you know, demanding that, that something would be done about the, 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 the sort of cholera. And even uh, though three men breakers. were taken to trial um, and given 12 months prison, the judge essentially blamed the medical community, the medical Yes, and the the, the rioters were also blaming and attacking medical practitioners. This came after the Hare and Burke uh, murderers who who had had murdered people in order to to get their bodies and sell them on to Knox for his 
his medical demonstrations, his anatomy demonstrations. So there was, uh, just like the pandemic in COVID, you start getting conspiracy theories. If people don't understand what is happening to them and why people are dying, they start reaching for explanation. They start looking for scapegoats again. And this is what happened with, with cholera. We have to mention Joseph William Bazalgette, the chief engineer of the Metropolitan Board of Works, who was hired specifically to design and build the new sewers and was given a chunk of change to do it somewhere in today's money between a, a quarter and a billion uh, pounds. And his scheme was, a, was an extensive network of tunnels. I don't know if anyone's ever seen either video of it or been down them, but they are um, inc- it is an incredible feat of engineering. And one of the things he did, which we benefit from today, although the system is under pressure, is that once he designed it, he just doubled the dimensions to take account of future use and growth of London. Um, and now they're building another sewer in parallel with it because... Oh, the super sewer under the river. Indeed. And it was built very rapidly because of the demand for for bricklaying and the enormous quantity of bricks being produced for this project and the pumping stations and everything else. You got the wages for bricklayers going up by 20%. So you get this huge need for engineers, for bricklayers, for builders, uh, for, for anyone involved in construction. And that, of course, was when the embankment was built, I mean, that ran along the Thames. And all those knobs who had fancy houses on the river had to give up their front gardens. They, they didn't like it at all. No. They really didn't like it. But as we know, it all started, as the time said, because uh, politicians started to notice the stench. I remember when I was a youngster going abroad to exotic places like Africa, you had to have jabs, and one of the jabs was always yellow fever, which I think lasted for about 10 years or something like that, and then you had to have another one. And yellow fever is a viral disease uh, which is spread by mosquitoes, and it caused a lot of trouble for our Navy in the Caribbean. It was known as yellow jack, and there are numerous examples of it laying waste to squadrons of British uh, naval ships in the Caribbean. For instance, in 1693, Rear Admiral Sir Francis Weller had 1,500 troops in Barbados, and they were killed off at such a a rate that the men were dying in a fashion that they had to be essentially constantly replaced. Uh, 1726, uh, while blockading the Spanish at Portobello in Panama, 20 British ships with 4,750 men under Rear Admiral Francis Hosier was hit by yellow fever and it persisted in the squadron for quite a long time after they returned to the Caribbean with 4,000 men dying including the Admiral himself. And later on even Nelson got yellow fever. It was always considered a death sentence if you were sent uh, to the West Indies. It, it, it was these tropical diseases, these mosquito-borne diseases, were an absolute terror to seafarers uh, in these places. And it kept on coming back. You, you, you then got sort of later versions of it. Um, you know, during, and, and during the French Revolution, there, there was a, a yellow fever type brought from uh, Africa that decimated the French 
out in the West Indies, and all the beaches were used as graveyards, I mean, mass graves. It, it, it was terrifying, the, 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 the speed and the numbers who were killed by that particular pestilence. And um, the only way to really survive a virus is to have immunity. And so if you arrive in a, in a new place with a lovely fresh English blood in your system, the mosquitoes are going to have a field day, whereas the locals have, will have immunity from having lived for generations in that part of the world. Indeed. And the other one we talked about earlier was, was typhus. I mean, the terrible impact that typhus had. And if you're a maritime nation, if your empire is spreading on trade and enforcement of blockade, for example, spending long time on duty, such things as scurvy are going to take a, make an impact. But, but typhus is going to be a, a real horror. And that's it's mainly spread by body lice, although it, it, there are it, it, other types as well. It, it is, and and that's why it's it's not just ships; it's also trenches. We talked about war and the importance of war in spreading these. But and 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 you you look even in the twentieth century, the the impact of of typhus, of of lice infestations in trenches and on ships, and it, it decimated. Um, the, the, the people had attacked. And on certain occasions it so terrified the high command that they actually altered their military plans to avoid areas that had uh, typhus really uh, a heavy infestation. Well yes, if you look at Serbia the Austro-Prussians were, were terrified of actually sending their armies into Serbia because they knew there had been a typhus outbreak and they did not want their men to bring typhus infested lice back into their lines. You look at the numbers, I mean I think 50,000 died in the Serbian lines from, from typhus. 50,000 uh, who were just prisoners in Serbia and, and uh, you know we know we've talked about the, the terrible flu, Spanish flu after the war but on top of all that you had a great outbreak of typhus in the east and Russia. Yes, I mean, Russia between 1919 and I think about 1925, you had five million killed by typhus. So, so it is this lack of hygiene, it's close proximity, it's the lack of facilities for refugees, for those being in trenches, for those imprisoned, and, and the squalor in which they're kept that fuels these infestations and fuels the spread of these diseases. And the upside, well, it, some could, would say that um, these terrible events on board ships in particular created early charities. So he had the Chatham Chest set up in 1588, which was really to pay pensions to disabled seamen. And that was actually um, financed by regular deductions from seamen's pay. And then the first charity, the Marine Society, British charity, which was um, established for seafarers in 1756 at the beginning of the Seven Years' War. But the terror of these diseases never went away. I mean, the you know, warships flying the yellow flag, being quarantined when they sat outside port, it was always terrifying. I mean, and, and typhus in yellow fever, you look at typhus, uh, during the Spanish Armada, I mean, there were there were ships that were left with one sailor alive at the end of it. I mean, several thousand died from typhus on uh, Queen Elizabeth I's navy uh, after the after the, the Armada. It, it was a real problem, a real challenge. 
and we won't dwell on it too long, but obviously malaria is also still a great killer. Um, I think you said something like three million a year are still dying from malaria. So. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're real problems with these diseases. And as I said, if you're spreading your empire, if you're sending ships abroad, those sailors, those soldiers who are supposed to be the spearhead of your empire, and, and the merchants as well, are going to end up with real problems, are going to end up in colonies that are affected by yellow fever or malaria mm. at a particular moment. And I mean, even even the, the, the deaths caused by drinking unpasteurized milk were, were, were large. Um, brucellosis. Yeah, brucellosis. And, mm. and uh, Lord Moynihan's ancestor, who won the Victoria Cross in the Crimean War, he survived all of that in the Crimean War and then died on Malta from drinking milk. Uh, yeah. that was infected so so anything could get you frankly yeah my great grandmother was killed with by cerebral malaria as a young woman my grandmother was an orphan yeah i mean we're we're, we're so used to having cures but i mean certainly over the last few centuries there, there have not been cures for so many of these things So a plague that the World Health Organization is very f uh, proud of eradicating is smallpox, uh, which is a virus, uh, a highly contagious virus. Symptoms include fever, muscle aches, headaches, fatigue, and most famously red spots, which turn into small blisters and can scar the face. And it had a major influence and effect on the American um, Revolutionary War in the 1770s? It had a huge effect on them. It's believed to have killed about 130,000. It, it was a terrible virus. And, but if you look today at, at uh, the effects that the World Health Organization thinks it's eradicated, it's fascinating to see that it, it's so virulent, it's so unpleasant, so deadly, that only a handful of countries keep a file of smallpox in order to research it in order to, to guard themselves against future outbreaks. So it, it tends to be kept in, in biological weapons labs, really, either for experimentation or, as we've seen with the Russians, to actually try and exploit it for its military capabilities. Well, John Adams, uh, in the middle of the war, said, uh, our misfortunes in Canada are enough to melt a heart of stone. The smallpox is ten times more terrible than the Britons Canadians and Indians together. It was a horrendous disease, and, and we're talking the 1770s here, and it's incredible to see that this is when soldiers started self-inoculating against smallpox. So people actually understood the point of inoculation, which is, which is fascinating. You started getting hospitals being established, uh, military hospitals being established with inoculation uh, being prescribed. And George Washington actually insisted that inoculation was required for any new army recruits heading through Philadelphia. The first medical mandate in American history. Indeed. So, so I think it's a, it's a good disease, in, in a way, with which to end, that you, you go through the litany of horror through all these centuries and you come to sort of medical practice being pushed forward. You, you see inoculation, vaccination being developed so as, battles, as a science. Battles are won, but the war is never going to be over on this particular the, plane. 
the war's never going to be over on this, and 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 mankind is always going to be fighting diseases, and it's so often this idea, as we said at the beginning, of urbanization, of war and migration, of population flow, that creates the circumstances, the conditions that fuel the spread of these diseases. And smallpox is one of them. And you only have to go to the Hunterian Museum today in London, the faces of people who, who suffered various diseases, including smallpox, floating in formaldehyde to see what a terrifying uh, litany of disease have, have plagued mankind. Well, obviously, in most recent uh, memory, we've had the outbreak of COVID. Three quarters of a billion supposedly had had the disease, and uh, with uh, seven million deaths worldwide. Uh, and then, but before that, we had AIDS in the eighties. There's always some pandemic. There's always something coming along, and it doesn't matter whether it comes from the Wuhan Virology Institute or from the pangolin. There's always going to be something, or from the green monkey. There's always going to be a disease, or from birds. I don't believe anything has come from the pangolin. It's much maligned, perfectly <laughs> innocent creature. Indeed, but but one never knows quite what the vectors are. But but there's always a patient X. There's always someone who, through travel, is going to bring a disease, is going to spread something. And that's one for the future. And we could talk about the contagion of the mind because it's, it's often the imagination, it's often the fears of a population, the, the superstitions it creates, the conspiracy theories it creates, that are the one of the things that have to be met. Um, during these epidemics. What do you mean when uh, people are locked up in their houses for a year and a half with COVID and, and watch YouTube all day long? Well, well and getting fat, basically. <laughs> but uh, but it, you know, we've come to something when police will, will uh, move people on from a bench, for example, sitting on a bench whilst ignoring someone smoking skunk 20, 20 yards away. <laughs> yeah, mind yeah. you, the, the police in, in our local park are, are so fat, they couldn't, they couldn't catch even if you had five ancient dogs on no, leads. No, they've probably eaten the pangolin. <laughs> <laughs> they but, drive around in a van. Yes. We, we know what we're talking about. <laughs> but but, but the, that perhaps is the modern disease. That perhaps is a modern epidemic. It's, it's one of uh, mental issues of, of feeding on fear, of feeding on various self-absorptions. This is, this is one of the problems with modern man, and social media doesn't help. Perhaps that is the modern epidemic. And, of course, you've got uh, the computer virus as well. Well, yes, and uh, dealing with Russian malware. So, so there are many aspects of human life that are, are affected um, uh, in a malign fashion. I really need to come up with a jingle for our postscript, but I haven't got one and Jamie hates me singing, so we'll just get straight into it. Our postscript is on early biological warfare. Yes, we mentioned before about biological weapons, and so it's worth ending with, with man-made devices. And you can go way back. I mean, Homer and Herodotus were, were talking about arrows dipped in poisonous snakes and, and dung and everything else. English archers... Why wouldn't you? 
Exactly. And the English archers stuck their arrows in the ground and in dung in order to spread infection among enemy, any enemy troops. My favourite one is 198 AD, when the Parthians were throwing pots filled with scorpions down on Roman legions below their walls. And we mentioned Kaffa, uh, the siege of Kaffa, which is always an interesting one, 1347, when apparently uh, the Mongols were throwing um, plague-ridden corpses onto the Genoese. So all the way through history, you've got sort of the military, the military application of some kind of biological or chemical weapon, some sort of device to spread disease and discontent among the enemy and spread illness and undermine morale. And that's really what biological weapons do. So I think going into the future, we have to be aware of the ongoing development by rogue regimes of this kind of technology and we'll watch out to see if there are any outbreaks of which we are unprepared, ill-prepared. Okay, folks, I won't say I hope you enjoyed that, but I do hope that you found it informative. And please don't feel you have to rush home and Lysol the fruit bowl. Remember what Nanny said, you have to eat a peck of dirt before you die. And a peck is rather more than you might think. Thank you, Jamie. Tom, I'm suddenly covered in this weird rash. What's happening to me? Quarantine. <laughs> Yellow flag. Maggie will come and drape you in a cloth. <laughs> so it goes. You've been listening to Bloody Violent History with Tom and Jamie. Please pass this podcast on and thank you for your support. And good luck. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> <laughs>